0: Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. This is a podcast with a simple premise. The art and joy of conversation is alive and well, and there are so many fascinating and inspiring people to meet. And it's my honor to share their stories with you. Today, we embark on a new venture. This marks our first taping in front of an audience. The setting couldn't have been more perfect. The elegant Millennium Tower in the heart of downtown Boston. A jewel of a building, now a significant member of the City Skyline Club. For this podcast, I invited a very special guest to join me. He's Dave Mellor, Chief Groundskeeper at the Shrine that is Fenway Park, home of the beloved Red Sox. Dave was with me to discuss his inspiring memoir, One Base at a Time, How I Survived PTSD and Found My Field of Dreams. What you're about to hear is a story of human endurance and triumph over a devastating set of circumstances and a condition all too common in our society, PTSD. You'll also hear my conversation with a personable, engaging, and thoughtful man who appreciates all that life has brought him. So, let's go on, Mike. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is so exciting to be doing a podcast in front of a live audience and a very uh, anticipatory audience here at the Millennium, which is 1 Franklin Street, one of the most beautiful buildings, not only in Boston, but anywhere. And we have a... Terrific guest and a great conversation to be had, an important conversation. I want to welcome to the broadcast, I still call them broadcast, the author of a book called One Base at a Time, How I Survived PTSD and Found My Field of Dreams by David R. Mellor, forward by Buster Olney, very famous sports columnist and celebrity. First of all, is it true that at home you have the best lawn of anybody in your neighborhood?
1: (laughs) It's always a work in progress, like a lot of home
0: Okay, we will talk about the turf at Fenway. We will talk about some of the inside baseball stuff, absolutely, because it's a big part of the story. But Dave is here to share a, a personal story, a story about dealing with and battling through PTSD for how many years, Dave?
1: 29 years.
0: 29 years. Okay. I like to do things chronologically, so let's start with a little taste of who you are and where you're from. You're a Red Sox fan, so you have to be from New England.
1: Well, I'm a Red Sox fanatic. My grandfather grew up in ni- or My grandfather played in 1902 in the majors, and my, gran- my father was from Rhode Island. And even though my dad died when I was three, I was born in Ohio, but I was raised to be a Red Sox fanatic.
0: Grandfather, 1902. There's a picture in the book of him in uniform. Yes, sir. Fantastic. So... You wanted to be a baseball player. Who what kid doesn't?
1: Not only a baseball player, I wanted to stand on Fenway Park's mound. That was my absolute my dream to make it to Fenway
0: Park. So pitching was your thing, right? Yes, sir. Okay, lefty, righty? I was a righty. Okay. And you were moving through the lower levels of baseball, really thinking that you might have a shot. And you were talented, and you are talented, but tell us about that.
1: Well, I I played ball through high school in Legion and had opportunities to play ball in college. And a month after I got out of high school, before, about 10 days before we were going to play in a state tournament, I had offers to sign scholarships. And my coach said, you know, David, if you do well in the state tournament, you'll have more scholarship offers. So if I were you, I would just wait and let's see how you do in the tournament. I said, that sounds great. So one of my friends said, you know, David, how about if we go see a movie tonight? The movie Stripes is going to be playing in a town nearby with Bill Murray. I said, that sounds great. Let's go have some fun. So we went to the movie. After the movie got out, um, there's a beautiful sunset, I'm major superstitious. And I thought that was a sign of good things, great things to come. And so we're driving home, and he says, how about if we stop at McDonald's to get a bite to eat? I said, that sounds great. So we pulled into McDonald's and parked on the side of the parking lot, a kind of across from the door entrance. We got out and started walking in, and I realized I forgot my wallet. And he, my friend said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and go in. I said, okay, I'll get my wallet, and I'll be there soon. I turned around to get my wallet, shut the door, and started to cross the parking lot, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a car pull in off the side of the street and stop suddenly where the sidewalk was still slanted, and the driver and the passenger got out and changed driver's positions, and I stopped, and when they got back in their cars, I motioned for them to drive through, and they waved me off and told me to walk and waved me through. So I started walking, and I heard them rev their engine and squeal their tires, and I had enough time to turn and raised my left leg and my hands, and the car was speeding right at me. And the car hit me, threw me 20 feet in the air, and I slammed into the brick wall right where the door jutted out, and slammed into the brick wall and landed in a pile right at the corner of that entrance of that door. And as soon as I looked up, the car was coming at a higher rate of speed and ripped the handle out of the cement, sparks were flying, and the car's bumper pinned the handrail and the bumper against my knee against the wall. And you know at the time I thought not only was my leg crushed, I thought my dreams were crushed. I mm-hmm. thought what am I going to do if I can't play baseball.
0: This is a story that has many directions and they're not all good. At this point your dreams are shattered, your body is shattered. Talk a little bit about the, the therapy that didn't go quite as planned either after you had some surgery and so forth. Yes
1: sir. Um, so at that time, uh, I still hoped to play baseball after that first accident and, and had to have a couple surgeries and, uh, in between two surgeries, uh, my doctor had given me a prescription to start physical therapy and the physical therapy department I went to did not have machines or ankle weights. They used tube socks filled with sand mm. and then would use an ACE bandage and strap them on your leg. And they had me sit on the side of the table and try to do leg extensions. And they had me start, uh, the prescription said to start with very low ankle weights or uh, low low weight. And the physical therapist said, David, you wanna play baseball again, right? I said, yes, sir. And he said, then you need to listen to me and work hard. And so the first day uh, he put on a higher amount of weight uh, than the the five pound limit for the week. And uh, I couldn't do it. So he said, come back Wednesday. And he put on 15 pounds, and I couldn't do it. And so he said, "Come back Friday." And on Friday, I laid on my. He told me to lay on my stomach and do hamstring curls. And he put five five five-pound sandbags and a -a two-and-a-half-pound sandbag on my ankle and Ace bandaged them, and told me to do hamstring curls and slapped me on my rear end and walked out of the room. And I remember looking over my shoulder and seeing this big, big lump on my ankle. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure I can, how can I lift this if I couldn't lift the others? And I grabbed the side of the table and tried to lift it. My leg got partway up and all the weight shifted and my ankle bounced off the floor while my hip stayed flat on the table. And I screamed and uh, the the nurses came running in and and lifted my leg off the floor. And what happened was not only... previous damage to my leg done but all the ligaments in my leg were shredded
0: there is so much detail that you remember about that and that gets to the ptsd and the onset of it you started to have nightmares about I, that mcdonald's about the car about all those things how old are, again were you at this point you were only i was 18
1: the first when i first got hit by the car and I actually started having nightmares that first night mm-hmm. when i was hit by the car and had one to five nightmares every night for 29 years.
0: Okay, we're talking with Dave Mellor. He is also a hero locally because he keeps the field at Fenway looking spectacular and we'll talk about that. And we'll actually talk a little bit about how you became a groundskeeper and where baseball enters into your life. But it's really heartbreaking to know how many times you had injuries upon injuries. And there's another car Mishap that's a euphemism it's a purposeful run-in with a car on a baseball field for crying out loud.
1: Yes, sir um, You know, I've had 45 I've been hit by a car three times and I figure that's better than four And <laughs> I've had 45 surgeries and figure that's better than 46. You know, I think I'm the luckiest person in the world you know uh, I Never would have met my wife who's absolutely my best friend and incredible if I wouldn't have been hit by the car I'd never have two amazing daughters if I wouldn't have been hit by the car it wouldn't have a career i enjoy and it wouldn't be who i am if i didn't have the opportunity to learn from and overcome and have that adversity shape me
0: into who i am but the book we're talking about is a sports book in a different kind of way you're not the athlete but you're involved with sports in such an important way i mean as as the background helper for athletes to make sure they don't trip up on the field make sure the field is safe how ironic that you ended up in this but it's not that ironic because As you point out in the book, early on, you were watching your dad mow the lawn, I guess, and you were fancying yourself a pretty good gardener.
1: That's how I made money when I was growing up, was lawn care. And when I first got hit by the car, you know, I kind of became mad at the world and thought, if I can't play baseball, what am I going to do? And I was raised to believe that adversity makes us stronger. And my mom and two brothers inspired me to never give up. And they told me when I was hit by the car actually how lucky I was and to use my time wisely during my physical therapy. And I walked on crutches for two and a half years, and I walked with a cane for 10 months and had to learn how to walk again. And they said to find a career that I truly love to do, because so many people don't have that passion and don't love their job. And I brainstormed and thought, what do I really love? I wanted to work outside. I grew up taking care of people's lawns. I enjoyed science, and I loved baseball. I thought someone has to be a major league groundskeeper.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, you followed one of the great legendary groundskeepers named Joe Mooney.
1: Yes, sir. Who
0: uh, would, shall we say, get violent with people if they stepped on the grass at Fenway. You've changed that policy. It's a little more open-ended, right? People can actually walk on the grass without being whipped
1: Well, well, Mr. Mooney's. if I could be half as nice to the next uh, groundskeeper (laughs) as he's been to me, he's an incredible legend.
0: He's like a grandpa to your kids. He is, yes, sir. We'll talk more about PTSD and all that in a second. I just want to finish the career. You wound up interning for another major league team. Tell us about that experience.
1: I, I interned for the Milwaukee Brewers, the California Angels, the San Francisco Giants. Yes, sir.
0: And by the way, Bud Selig. The former commissioner of baseball and the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, you say, was absolutely a gem of a guy.
1: Absolutely. One of the nicest people I've met in my life, let alone in baseball.
0: That's the thing, yeah, we get these tabloid images of people and media representations. It's nice to know them as real people, and a lot of folks in baseball have helped you along the way, have given you that opportunity.
1: I've been very fortunate and blessed and have a lot of support.
0: Although, you should know that the Yankees did make a play for you, (laughs) and you almost were drawn into the devil's den. Almost.
1: (laughs) I was very humbled that uh, Mr. Steinbrenner reached out many years ago, and gosh, 1988, offered me a
0: job. That was a time when George Costanza was working for him, (laughs) I believe. So a different era. So let's get back to the real issue here, and that is how this affected you. And it's not all about you. You're very open and and very much uh, a sharing individual. This is about all of us who are dealing with whatever trauma it is. The first thing people should know is we know about veterans and first responders in war and in situations like 9 11 that's obvious but it's not so obvious maybe until now in books like this that it can affect anyone trauma affects anyone and everyone
1: yes sir you know uh ptsd is nothing to be ashamed of you know trauma affects us all everyone listening today everyone here is dealing with some kind of challenge whether it's themselves or a loved one whether it's emotional or physical challenges And when I was going through, especially uh, those 29 years, I thought it was a sign of weakness to ask for help. I kept things deeply guarded. I didn't wanna burden my family. And writing the book, we want to not only bring awareness to PTSD, and that it's not only caused by war, it can be caused by any life-threatening trauma, and it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help, that you're not alone, that help's available, and treatment works, and also how amazing and life-changing service dogs are. You know, you mentioned Drago earlier. My service dog, Drago, other than my wife, he's my best friend. He's, my, he's a medical tool that is an important part of my life.
0: You found some sort of solace and relief, finally, after years of struggling. And you did what a lot of people do. You self-medicated to a certain extent. You used work, a lot of work, as a, uh, an escape. And you also did something that I want you to talk about, and that is you pretended or tried to pretend around the people you love and your best friends. Talk a little bit about that.
1: I did. Um, and I found that even when I, I was in school, the busier I kept myself, um, my symptoms were not as active. You know, I was having uh, one to five nightmares every night. Like I say, I was scared to go to sleep at night. Um, I knew as sure as the sun was going to set, It wasn't a question of if I was going to have nightmares. It was just a question of how many. And some nights I would sweat so profusely I'd have to change the sheets. I slept with the TV on at home, so that when my mom would come in when she heard me scream, and ask if I was okay, I would blame the TV. Uh, If my I was scared that if I screamed at night, my college roommates would hear it. I slept with you know when we got married. If my wife would wake up to my screaming, I would try to blame the TV. And one of my little girls would wake up and say, Daddy, what was that noise? I would try to blame the TV. Mm. Um, Flashbacks during the day. But if I kept myself busier, sometimes those symptoms weren't as intense. But there was also times, uh, especially in the off season, uh, that I may try to, I'd have dinner with the family and and go to the basement and drink some beers, hoping that maybe that would numb my emotional pain and try to reason with myself that maybe my nightmares wouldn't be as bad that night. Right. And then fortunately in 2006 in the summer, Denise came down and said, David, you know, the girls and I wish you wouldn't come down here and drink, you're know, you taking valuable time away from us. And I never looked at it like that. I thought I was hopefully somehow helping myself be a better dad and husband. And that was like a lightning bolt to my heart. And Mm. I stopped drinking that night.
0: You also uh, talk about gratitude and the fact that you have this amazing woman in your life. It's very much an issue of gratitude when you have somebody, as I do, in my life. Let's talk a little bit about the therapy that finally changed things for you. This book is as much a teaching tool as it is an inspirational read. What was it that sort of started to turn things around therapeutically? Well,
1: um, I, I, do, I have acupuncture as part of my pain management, and I was having acupuncture uh, September 23rd, 2010, and there was a table with probably 50 magazines on it, and I just happened to pick up a Smithsonian magazine and laid down for treatment. The doctor put the needles in, and the first page I opened up in the middle of the magazine was an article about a new treatment facility for veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress. And my daughter was interning at the wonderful home base program at the Mass General Hospital. And so I thought I would read this article to learn more about what my daughter was studying and learning. And the first paragraph listed 12 symptoms of PTSD. And as I read them, I could just actively feel, Mm. feel them. I could check the boxes of 10 of those 12 symptoms of either I actively had them or I had dealt with them. The only ones I did not have were suicide and drug use. And while that scared the heck out of me, it gave me hope because up at that point, I didn't know what I had been dealing with. I just thought it was something that I had to just suck up and, and deal with. And I never fathomed it could be post-traumatic stress. And for years, when I started dating my wife, I literally fell in love with her the first night we met. And she's my best friend. I share everything with her. But I, I was scared that I didn't know how to describe these symptoms myself. Mm. And I would rehearse out loud in the car, driving back and forth, to Ohio State, to pick her up in the car for dates, trying to find the right words to describe my symptoms. Not only my physical pain, but my emotional pain. And I thought if I don't find the right words and ex- describe this right, then maybe she'll leave me. So I tried to describe them before I asked her to marry me, before we got married, before each of our daughters were born. And I couldn't find the right words, so I never told her. But when I read that article, it was another lucky day in my life and i went home after that treatment i said honey we've got to talk i opened my soul and all those things i had feared she might say she didn't say i didn't give her credit for the amazing wonderful lady she is she said david Mm. i love you Mm. we'll get through this together let's call your doctor and go to mass general tomorrow
0: how many of us believe in serendipity i do How many of us, though, are too frightened to think what will others think, even the people we love? This is a very typical case. What makes yours a little more special is because you're in the spotlight every day when you're involved in the baseball world and you're supporting your family and and doing all this, working yourself to the bone, presenting the most pristine fields in America, and you're covering, covering it up. What a relief it must have been to just say, here it is.
1: It certainly started it. You know, in going to Mass General the next day, I still, you know, I had to see a psychologist. And at that point, I still thought it was a sign of weakness to ask for help. So I went in the next day with my hat pulled down, just hoping no one would recognize me. And now I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. I proactively, I mean, I see a counselor and I proactively, uh, if I have a, a trigger, I'm concerned about or I have something happen, I reach out to my counselor where before I would have buried those symptoms and they would have gotten it, worse.
0: It's okay to ask for help.
1: Absolutely. And we want people to know that it's, it's nothing to be ashamed
0: of. Not at all. Not at all. You mentioned Drago. Let me re- bring it back to him. And then we'll talk a little baseball. Drago is an amazing service animal. He's been with you almost seven years. Talk about how he interacts with you and when others are around you, because it's fascinating and you write beautifully about it in the book.
1: Drago uh, helps me with post-traumatic stress, um, as well as mobility. So he helps me on stairs, he helps me in crowds, um, he helps me should I fall. Um, He's trained uh, with special task. Um, Should he sense anxiety, um, he's trained to uh, get me to focus on him, to break that anxiety. Uh, One, if, if I'm sitting down, he will get his front legs on my lap, lean his chest into me, That's called Deep Compression Therapy. Um, He, he, if I, if I'm in the house and I fall, he, he barks on command. He can go get my wife. If I have a nightmare I've had. So part of counseling, uh, thank goodness, uh, February 25th, I started counseling September, 2010. And fortunately, February 25th, 2011, I slept through the night for the first time in 29 years. I slept seven hours and then fortunately I, I have only had two nightmares since and both those were in uh, November 2015 and both times Drago jumped on the bed and woke me up
0: the writing is part of the therapy uh, both my wife and I read the book uh, Roberta read it more recently and we both commented on how wonderful the writing is it's so real and so eloquent and you told me, you know, writing was part of your therapy.
1: was. Well, it was a big part of my therapy. I, I did uh, cognitive behavior exposure therapy. And part of that was we, we broke down each. I went for an hour on Mondays and an hour and a half on Fridays for my counseling. And we went through each trauma and I had to write about those traumas. And uh, initially, I started writing them in shorthand. And I would cry so intensely that the paper would get so soaked, I would have to start over. And then I went to an iPad and, but I would read them to myself, read them out loud, read them to the counselor to over time, break down, desensitize those emotions. But all that writing started the basis of the manuscript. And then uh, when we received the book deal, we hired an incredible ghostwriter named Glenn Stout who uh, was instrumental in helping polish that and do interviews with me.
0: Before we talk about that big ring on your finger and people can see it up close after we're done, what is your hope and what are you noticing on the tour that you're on to promote this book? What is your real dream that comes out of this? I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear it in your words. Well,
1: we want to inspire people with hope and inspire people to not give up. You know, we all face challenges in different ways. And it's nothing to be ashamed of to ask for help. We wanna make sure people know that they're not alone. And that, you know, don't compare your trauma to someone else's and go, oh, mine's nothing to compare to so and so's, so I don't need help. Don't suffer in silence and reach out to a doctor. And if you don't fit with that doctor, don't go, oh, well, I tried it and it didn't work. There are other doctors. And there's other types of counseling and treatments. Find one until it works, because investing in yourself is well worth it. And PTSD doesn't just affect you. It affects your loved ones, too. It affects your whole family. And when I was going through it, I did my best to protect my family and thought I did well. But since, as I write in the book, my family's told me I, did, I wouldn't have won an Oscar for my acting. <laughs> You know i thought i protected them but i went through mood swings i went through times where i just kind of withdraw withdrew Mm -hmm. from my loved ones right and you know it's we want to inspire people to not give up and not be afraid to ask for help
0: that's why i think this book is is going to live on a lot longer than some because it's got a great message and it's a true story about a guy who didn't give up all right Fish at Fenway. We know they serve legal seafood, clam chowder in the ballpark these days, but uh, you tell a story about fish on the field.
1: Yes. So um, I was hired by the Red Sox in uh, November of 2000. And one of the first times I sat down with uh, Mr. Mooney, who was the groundskeeper for the Red Sox for 30 years before me, was in January of 2001. We were sitting there and talking about how ballparks were similar and different. And when I came to Fenway, there was an 18-inch crown, a big slope to the field at Fenway, kind of the middle of the field was the high point. And he said, David, if it really rains hard, the dugouts flood because of the crown of the field. And I had seen that before, so I said, yes, sir. And he said, if it really, really rains hard, the, the concourse will flood behind uh, home plate and third base because the water will back up, from the city street because it can't handle a heavy thunderstorm. And he said, if it really, really, really rains hard, water will back up from the city street and fish from the Charles River will swim through the city streets, come up in the first base camera fit, pit, will fill to the top of the camera pit and fish will swim all the way out onto the field. And I thought, oh my gosh, Mr. Mooney, that's, that's incredible. And I went home and told my wife, you won't believe the stories that Mr. Mooney tells. <laughs> and that was in January. And I didn't think anything of it. And then that year we opened on a Monday um, in early April. And on Friday night, uh, the forecast was for us to get two to three inches of rain. So we put the tarp on. Sure enough, Saturday morning, uh, we received close to three inches of rain. And I walked out behind home plate along the edge of the tarp, got near the first base dugout. And sure enough, there was a fish about six inches long on the edge of the grass. I looked up in the upper deck thinking Mr. Mooney was hiding, setting me up for a joke. I yelled his name and he was nowhere to be found. I walked over to the camera pit and sure enough, it was full of water. Between the camera pit and the second base position, there were seven more fish.
0: And the Florida Marlins were not in town. (laughs) No,
1: no Florida Marlins.
0: Great story. And we should mention that you're the author of several books about turf, lawn care, garden, you know, horticulture, things like that. Yes, sir. So um, any tips for those of us, by the way, who live here, who don't ever go near grass to mow it or tend to it, but seriously, what's the best thing you can do for your lawn? Well, there's there's quite a few,
1: but uh, um, investing in, in good good quality grass seed, mm-hmm. uh, taking care of your mowers. so. You want to make sure you're mowing at the proper mowing height so you're not scalping your grass sharpening your mower blades don't waste water you know water at the proper time of the day which is usually between 2 a.m and 7 a.m if you can Um, be be responsible with the water be responsible with fertilizer read the label don't think a little bit's good a lot must be better (laughs) Uh, be responsible use it on your lawn don't spread it on your sidewalks, your driveway. Same with your irrigation. Don't let it go on your sidewalk and your driveway. Okay.
0: And one more thing about the grass at Fenway. The first time anyone sees it, you walk up from the, uh, the bowels of Fenway Park onto the, the ramp that leads to the dugout seats. It, it's a special moment. Do you remember that first moment you saw Fenway?
1: Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely magical. From the beauty of the grass to the green monster, the green, Absolutely and the, and the white
0: uniforms that were oh. sparkling in the sunshine. Absolutely. It's pretty magical. Well, going forward, uh, we know that you will continue to keep the field in great shape for the players. And by the way, when people see you and your crew out there on Fenway Park turf doing what you do, particularly during rainouts or rain delays, they will see an amazing array of choreography that's going on. They will also see Drago. yes sir but Drago is uh inclined to do something very important or not do something very important
1: he's trained not to go to the bathroom on grass okay so he he goes on command and we go outside the park to do that
0: (laughs) I'm not even trained to do that (laughs) I can't thank you enough for sharing with us on this podcast uh your story which is told so beautifully in this book fast becoming a talked about book and not only baseball but other circles one base at a time the fact that you joined us here in our first public presentation podcast has been really a thrill and a joy and uh, I want to thank you for your honesty and and really thank you for your gift to so many who are going to get benefit from this thank you so much
1: thank you for the opportunity all your support
0: ladies and gentlemen David Mellor At this point is there anyone who has a question for David and just ask it and I'll repeat it in case we can get it on oh this young lady right down front yes question is what about the dying of grass on a baseball field how often is it done in details if you would
1: Um, so the the, I think the example you're asking uh, was done after a a workout uh, my first year when we had the grass at a higher rate a higher cut and um, a player, it needed to come down to a shorter cut in, in basically 24 hours, and the grass turned off color. And so we used uh, a dye just to aesthetically blend it in. Um, so we can use uh, a dye to cover up imperfections. We can use dye to draw heat to help heal a stressed grass, but usually we will. what you're seeing is just natural Healthy grass, but you can use it to hide imperfections.
0: Was that Nomar?
1: That, that instance in 2001 was a situation. Uh, Nomar was, was a fantastic uh, player to work with. Just fantastic. And he had been on an injury uh, situation, and the players uh, that were playing before him didn't have his range. And so the grass was at a higher height of cut. And then when he came back, uh, he was used to playing at a shorter grass and very nicely asked if we could cut it shorter. So we did, and in doing so, the grass turned off color. And so to cosmetically blend that in, uh, we just put some green dye on it, and it blended yeah. all in, and nobody noticed it any different. And no more, couldn't have been nicer about it.
0: We took a few additional questions for Dave at the live podcast, but there was one about the accident, the McDonald's accident, the first one, that led to a follow-up question by me. And to hear Dave tell the story, well, it's harrowing. Here it is.
1: You no, know, she said she stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Um, it was just a, a freak accident. Um,
0: but we did refer to the second, well, one of three, the the time you were run down on the field. Was it in Milwaukee? Oh, yes, sir. Tell, so, tell that story again.
1: So when I was working for the Milwaukee Brewers, um, we had just uh, taken all the sod off of the field and were getting ready to lay new sod. And... Uh, I was out in left field raking around an irrigation head when, uh, you know, uh, as you can imagine, I was very hypersensitive and aware of car noises. And we had a secured area behind the bleachers that was uh, for fan concourse, and then a big security gate behind that area where cars and, and a parking lot behind that. And I heard a car and I thought that is, you know, there shouldn't be a car inside the stadium. I turned, and I saw a car coming from behind the bleachers toward the field. We had a big double field gate open, and so I ran over to where the warning track and field gate met, and the field gate was open. I put my arms up, and the lady, probably 50 feet away from me, smiled as big as she could, and stepped on the gas and came right at me. And she hit me, I hit the windshield, and I landed in a pile. on the warning track right against the wall pads. And she went speeding around the warning track and did a full lap, hugging right on, staying on the warning track, but right against the edge of the grass. And two of the, the crew members came over and said, David, how can I help you? And I said, please call 911 and please make sure the big steel delivery gates behind the bleachers are locked so she can't get away. And as I was laying on the track, I see her making this full lap and they say she's hugging the edge of the grass, but as she gets closer to me, instead of staying on the edge of the grass, she turns and aims right at me. And I'm laying on the ground and I can't move. And I think, this is it, you know, she's, she's gonna kill me. And as she gets real close to me at the last minute, she swerves and slams yeah. on the brakes and sits up in her car and excessively waves at me and waves at me and then sits back down and steps on the gas and peels out covers me in track material, and I'm just trying to catch my breath and gather my thoughts, and in and a, and a few moments, I can hear her screaming, screaming at the top of her lungs, cuss words, and I, I just can't figure out what's going on, and, and I pull myself up against the wall pads and limp out behind the bleachers, and I see the, uh, the security gate, one of those uh, mechanical arms that's painted a wooden arm, painted orange and white that just splintered on the ground. And she's in a, a trench coat and a business suit, screaming cuss words at the security guard to let her out. And every cuss word you can think of, she's screaming at the top of her lungs and then her eyes will roll up in her head and then she'll scream more cuss words. And then I see that uh, her car's still running. And I think, you know, I better take the keys out or she's gonna hurt someone else or she's gonna go drive on the field. And so as soon as I turn the car off, she comes running right at me. And she gets in my face and spitting on me and and cussing at me and says, you know, give me my bleeping keys. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't do that. And she kind of shoves me and gets in the car and slams the door. And about that time, the deputies show up. And I knew the deputies from work and they asked what happened. And I briefly told them and they told her to get out of the car and she wouldn't. And so I gave them the keys and they unlocked the door and she grabbed an ink pen out of the the console and tried to stab the deputies. And so they cuffed her and put her in the back of the squad car and it was a beautiful fall day and they opened her back window about this far and put her in the squad car probably where that sofa is and there was another squad car kind of where I am and they said, David, before you go to the hospital, do you mind filling out this report? And so as I'm filling it out, she yells at the deputies and uh, said some rude things. And the deputies went over and said, you know, how can I help you? Why are you here? And the lady screams that I'm here to do a stunt for the movie. And if it doesn't work, I'm supposed to kill myself. And this is on a Thursday. So instead of taking her to jail, they take her to the mental hospital. And on sunday night i get a phone call from an attorney that said would you please come testify tomorrow otherwise they're gonna let her go and i said well i don't want to be the only person to testify if she's this unstable they said no there'll be other people there so i go to the mental hospital there's a regular courtroom just like you see on tv and and so she's she's waived her rights to appear in person her attorney's there she's in her room in a straight jacket And so the police officer testifies, I testify, and then a doctor testifies that in 1990, she had a past history with mental illness. 1991, she was arrested in Florida for stalking Julio Iglesias. 1993, she was arrested on international charges, threatening the Queen of England, demanding to be adopted, or she was gonna hurt the Queen. And the night before she did this at County Stadium, She tried to assault Oprah in Chicago, but she got away. But Oprah's security staff got a picture of her and her license plate. And so the judge said, well, we can keep her for three more days till we have another hearing. And they asked me to come back on Wednesday. So I went back on Wednesday, and she is on her fifth attorney since Monday. And she's sitting at a table, and I'm probably, you know, 10, 15 feet away. she just stares at me the whole time just giving me the you know dirty look and so everyone testifies again and judge says well we can keep her for six months or till we find a medicine that works he puts the gavel down and she jumps up and starts cussing the judge out says don't tell me what to do I know what medicine to take and her attorney says you know settle down this isn't the way to work or a way to act and she puts her finger in his face and says you shut the bleep up you work for me she turned and lunged at him and started, and started shaking her finger at me, lunged at me and said, I want to know, did I come within one foot, two foot, or three foot of hitting you? Because I always miss at one foot. And the judge said, clear the courtroom and subdue her. And they were putting her on, on the floor when I left.
0: Just the thing you need when you have PTSD. So Unbelievable. And you write about it and in great detail. And- and that's mental illness, obviously, at play, but startling to think that so many of these horrible incidents happen to you in, in similar fashion with chronic pain and so forth, and yet here you are, uh, able to talk about it, and it must, be, it must be quite a different feeling than it was when it happened or shortly thereafter.
1: It is. You know, we want to make sure people learn to celebrate their life every day mm. because you never know when the next challenge is going to happen. You know, my, as I mentioned, my dad died when I was three, my brother died suddenly, um, 1998, that we write about in the book. You know, I was injured on an airplane just two years ago, suddenly when a uh, luggage compartment door slammed me in the head, I'm still dealing with post-concussion syndrome, dislocated clavicle and shoulder problems. You never know when that next challenge is going to happen. And when my brother died, there were so many things I wish I would have told him, not only that I loved him, but thanking him for mentoring me, for the sacrifices that he did. And I missed my opportunity because I just got busy with life. I didn't make the time. I didn't make the choice when I had the opportunity. And so I hope people will learn from my mistakes in the book and make the opportunity to reach out to your loved ones today and often so that you don't suffer that pain that I have.
0: I think we'll wrap with that being our last official question but folks who are here in the audience are welcome to come on up and if you want to purchase a book and he'll sign it for you uh, and also just to say hello to Drago would be kind of fun. So. Thank you to the Millennium. Thank you to my man, Dan Tebow. to all of you who came out to support this podcast. And I just want to tell you that it's called On Mic with Jordan Rich, that's my name, and you can find it on any directory. Search for it and you'll find it anywhere. If you have a podcast app, you can download it. David, I can't thank you again enough. And uh, you got a great lady there in Denise. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Jordan Rich. Thanks again to the Millennium Tower staff and management here on Franklin Street in downtown Boston for their kindness, assistance, and promotion. Special thanks to concierge Alex Perch, whose idea it was to reach out to David Meller. I am so appreciative. Also, to concierge Josh Logan. Can't say enough. You were so helpful the night of the podcast taping. I also want to thank my producer and technical director, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, who did so much to make the first live show possible. Dan, what you do for us day to day is awesome and there are more live shows in our future, I can guarantee you. Also thanks to my business partner, Ken Carberry of Chart Productions, no better friend. And to the lovely Roberta, my far better half, who supports me in every way and will always let me know when my tie doesn't match my suit. Finally, to reach me, Jordan at ChartProductions.com. On Twitter, it's at JordanWBZ, And on Facebook, go to Jordan Rich Show. Finally, to you, those of you who subscribe, download, rate, and review podcasts, I really am thankful that you picked up on this one. Till next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.